Think back to your first real true love. The sensation of butterflies in your stomach if you even thought about them and the overwhelming urge to spend every waking moment with them. Your life and heart have become dedicated to them and it takes everything in your power not to bore your friends and family with constant chatter about them. You go on dates for months, falling deeper and deeper in love, and your skin prickles with excitement every time you touch. Everything feels like pure bliss. How could things get any better? And then they do. In a grand, romantic gesture, they sweep you off your feet with a proposal to spend the rest of your life together. And now, you get to start the arduous but exhilarating task of planning a wedding, followed by a life of beautiful companionship. Just like everybody said it would, your wedding day flies by in a whirlwind, but you savor every single moment that you can. Then, just like that, you're out of your childhood home, setting out to start your new life with your soulmate. Fast forward, and now you have four perfectly wonderful children, more money than you know what to do with, tons of rich friends, and a partner who seems to own the town. This is everything that you ever dreamed of, and while you should be glowing with pride for your hard-earned life, it's bittersweet. The partner who you spent decades with, raised four babies with, and overcame all adversities with has been acting differently lately. They're brooding, angry, and seem altogether miserable. But what have you done? Your anxiety roars through you, devouring otherwise happy moments. You feel like you can't stop interrogating them, and sleep escapes you as the only thing that you can focus on is your despondent spouse. Finally, the months of arguing reach a boiling point and in the middle of a fight, they blurt out, I'm cheating on you. Instantly, your mouth is dry and you lurch forward, grasping at the person who promised to love you forever, feeling an all-consuming compulsion to be held by the one you adore, hoping beyond reason that you misheard and yearning for their touch, they take a step back, not making eye contact, and quietly mumble that they have already met with an attorney and you'll be served with divorce papers within the week. Seeing red and feeling empty, you stumble out of the home, and a few months later, the one that you swore you would die for is now dead, and their blood is on your hands. Hello all, and welcome to Creeps and Creeps. I'm your host, Cece Delaney, and today we're going to be discussing the Queen Petty, Betty Broderick. But first, if you're new here, welcome. I hope that by the end of this episode, you like this content enough to subscribe on YouTube or wherever you're streaming your podcasts and are also compelled to leave a like or review, with five stars obviously being the most helpful. I'm trying to build a communicative creepy crew around these parts, so any questions, comments, concerns, they're all welcome and encouraged in the comment section on YouTube or the related Instagram posts at Creeps and Creeps Podcast. Now let's get started. Elizabeth Ann Biseglia was born the third of six children on November 7th, 1947 in Bronxville, New York. Her parents, Marita and Frank Biseglia, raised the children as devout Roman Catholics and were both very successful in their own right. Frank and his brothers had a booming plastering business and Betty's mom taught Betty to be a devoted and supportive wife to whatever husband she eventually married. Betty said, quote, We had country clubs and cars. My mom's real social, so we have lots of clothes and designer things. I had a maid when I was growing up. Not that she was a slave, but our house ran very smoothly. I don't remember my mom scrubbing floors if you get the picture. My laundry magically got done. I don't remember who did it, but I know I didn't, unquote. According to Betty, the home was run like a tight ship, and expectations were incredibly high for the children. Other than that, though, there really isn't a lot that's known about her childhood. 
Betty graduated from Maria Regina High School in Hartsdale, New York in 1965, and then from the College of Mount St. Vincent in the Bronx, where she earned a degree in early childhood education through an accelerated program and also earned enough credits to get an English minor. Now, the other main player in this tale is named Daniel Broderick III, and he was born in 1944 in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. He was the eldest of a very large Irish Catholic family with nine children in total. Like Betty, Dan was ambitious and smart and placed a high value on wealth and social status. In 1965, when Betty was just 18 and in her freshman year of college, she was in town visiting a friend and they decided that they wanted to go party at the University of Notre Dame, Indiana, and that is where she met Dan. At the time, Dan was a senior and he was in his final year right before he started at Cornell University to study medicine. He was immediately enamored with Betty, but sparks really weren't flying on her end, and she said that he, quote, had long skinny sideburns, round tortoiseshell glasses. You're talking geek city, unquote. Obviously, Betty had to return home at some point, but that was chill with Dan, who loved the chase. He pursued Betty via mail when she went home to New York, and the two reconnected eventually when he moved to Manhattan in order to study medicine at the Cornell University campus there. Apparently, the first date was the date that changed everything, and Betty said that she fell in love with him in that moment, saying, quote, The instant I saw him, it was like a lightning bolt. That sudden and that intense, unquote. They ended up dating for two years while Betty finished her undergraduate degree. She says, quote, He was very ambitious, very intelligent, and very funny, and I am those three things. We were from the same kind of background. We both wanted the same things in the future. He promised me the moon. The guy asked me to marry him every day for three years, unquote. Also, just a side note, this episode's going to be really quote heavy because there's a lot of different perspectives one might say in this tale. So just prepare for that. Four years after they first met, Dan and Betty married on April 12th, 1969 at the Immaculate Conception Church in Tuckahoe, New York. It was really elaborate, really bougie, big, expensive, opulent, pretty much every word that you can use to describe a general dream wedding. Despite that, it's not like the wedding really went well because Dan insisted on wearing a suit that Betty's mom disapproved of, which had like pinstriping and she was very traditional. So she did not like it and Dan did not care and she ended up relenting. So Dan got his stupid little pinstripe suit and after tying the knot, she transitioned from her parents' mansion to join Dan at Cornell in his really not big medical school single students quarters. And at this time, he was actually in the middle of his third year. Betty was shocked when she came home and found found out that she was expecting a baby just a few weeks after coming home from their honeymoon. Despite her gynecologist's assurance that she would likely miscarry due to a uterine malformation, she not only successfully carried the baby to full term, but also managed to keep the pregnancy hidden from her colleagues at the elementary school where she was currently teaching third grade for several months. However, the baby Kimberly Broderick did arrive unexpectedly over a month before the anticipated due date and ended up being born in the January of 1970. Betty said, quote, we literally had nothing, not a single diaper or shirt and nowhere to put her down. We had her in a dresser drawer and my mother had Saks Fifth Avenue deliver a few clothing essentials, unquote. Fortunately for her, Betty found another young mom who needed daycare services and she was able to bring in extra income for caring for that woman's baby. And a few months later, Dan ended up getting his medical degree. I'm sure that up until this point, Betty had been holding her breath, just waiting for her husband's venture into the generally lucrative medical field. But Dan pulled in a reverse and decided, you know what? I don't actually want to be a doctor. Sorry, my bad. And he ended up heading to Harvard Law School, this time 
with his eyes set on a law degree. He decided that since he had his medical degree, soon to be coupled with a law degree, he could go into malpractice law or really anything that had a medical tone to it. Keep in mind, Dan was accepted into New York's University of Virginia School of Law, but Dan insisted that that was not good enough compared to Harvard, where he was also accepted, so he uprooted his tiny family in order to follow his dreams, which really pissed Betty off. So Betty begrudgingly settled back into the homemaker slash breadwinner role, biding her time until they could get luxuriously rich. During this time, Betty gave birth to her second daughter, Lee, in 1971, and was furious and afraid of their living conditions. According to her, they were living in the slums, where she had to take the bus, God forbid, because her car was stolen, which actually that does kind of suck. But like, calm down. It's just public transport. We all have to do it eventually. But the way she remembered it, she was happy enough supporting Dan and his dreams because she knew that they promised a brighter future. However, Dan had a very different recollection and he says that Betty spent the better half of their early marriage being awful and angry toward him and felt like she was never really happy with him. And this is just another side note. I'm going to be doing both perspectives fairly frequently because it does become important later during the trial portion of this case. Dan went on to say that she asked, quote, hundreds of times, unquote, for a divorce and even asked for one just two weeks after they were initially married. He says that every single time he asked for a reason, she really couldn't provide any rationale. She just knew that she was pissed off and this is just a personal opinion, extremely overwhelmed and maybe just panicking and spiraling in general because she is super young still. That and I do think that maybe the silver spoon in her mouth hadn't come out yet and I don't think she knew what she was getting into. Things finally started to ease up in the summer of 1973. Dan had spent the previous summer interning at a random law office in LA, and by the time 1973 rolled around, he had secured a position for himself at San Diego's most prestigious law firm, Gray, Carey, Ames, and Fry. This is where Betty would finally settle into her new life of luxury, and she befriended all of the other lawyers' wives and kept their inner circle pretty small. Dan was working hard at paying off his student loans and they were renting a home in Claremont for a little while until half of it burnt down. But this was maybe a blessing in disguise because they were able to take the insurance money and dip and put a down payment on a five-bedroom house on Coral Reef Avenue. For years, they existed in this house with little to no furniture, even after their son Daniel was born in 1976. Also, fun fact, he was Daniel the Fourth, and they nicknamed him Danforth, which is hilariously cute. Betty was still holding down the fort with her job as a hostess and cashier at Black Angus Steakhouse, even after losing another baby during this time. She ended up essentially contributing most of the money that she made to the household, whereas Dan was using his money in order to pay off student loans. She wrote in her memoir, Telling on Myself, that Dan was out of town on a ski trip when she went into labor with this particular child. She wrote, quote, He was angry at me for ruining the first ski trip he had been able to take for years, unquote. Unfortunately, the baby only survived for around four days until it eventually passed. All of this turmoil left her to her first suicide attempt later that year, saying, quote, I felt totally trapped with him and cut off from my family. I just wanted to escape from it all and die. I was 23 and couldn't face decades more of this existence, unquote. A big-ass financial risk came when Dan decided that he was ready to head out in the great wide world alone and have a solo venture 
and build up his own practice, where he would specialize in malpractice suits against physicians and worked relentlessly to create a reputation of being a, quote, tough-minded, unyielding litigator, unquote. I guess his reputation did end up coming to fruition because back in 1988, there was an interview with an acquaintance of his that said Dan had pretty much succeeded at this, saying, quote, anybody who's had Dan Broderick on the other side thinks that he's a royal jerk. He's so difficult to deal with. He's the coldest man you'll ever meet, unless he wants something from you, unquote. So I guess snaps for Daniel. You did it. Everyone's scared of you. 1979 seemed to be the year of financial freedom for them, as well as the year that they had their last son, Rhett. Betty said, quote, I can remember because we built a swimming pool in the backyard. And that's a luxury, right? We financed it into the house. So it wasn't like we paid cash for it or anything, but we were able to increase the house payment a little. So in my mind, that's when he had some money, unquote. Within a few years, finances were booming in the Broderick home. And by the time 1982 rolled around, Betty said that she had zero limit on her budget and they bought a boat, a ski condo, and they joined both the La Jolla and Fairbanks Ranch country clubs. Betty spent most of her time remodeling and redesigning the house with all of this newfound money and blossoming into a local fashion icon and socialite. She also happily took on the role of homemaker like she was conditioned to do from childhood, saying, quote, Our relationship was what it took in the old way. I had all the skills he needed at home. He needed me to give him legitimacy and normalcy of a wife who could entertain and have the kids and be a respectable family. And I needed him to bring home the bacon so I could have all the kids in the car and the trips in the house. And it worked out great. That was the deal. Unquote. However, Daniel had a firmly opposing view of this era of their marriage, saying, quote, She glosses over a lot when she says we were both happy. She tells my children that we had a blissful, happy, healthy marriage until I went crazy when I was 40. That's just pure fiction. It's a figment of her imagination that's not even close, unquote. Also mentioning the fact that he felt that they were incompatible from day one, but also conceding to the fact that he maybe wasn't the best, most loving husband on the planet. According to Betty, shit really hit the fan during a Christmas party in the winter of 1982. She had gone to get a drink or wandered away from Dan for whatever reason and overheard her husband comment to another guest, quote, wow, isn't she beautiful, unquote. Like any good wife and nosy bitch like myself would do, Betty immediately scoped the room for her new competition. She was concerned because she had a ton of gorgeous friends, but never once had she heard Dan comment on their beauty. So when he finally did, alarm bells were ringing. There was little time to spend worrying about this, though, because Betty took the kids on a summer trip around the western United States. But by the time they returned, Betty could just feel it in her bones that Dan had kicked off his affair with a pretty 21-year-old receptionist in the building named Linda Colkenna. Soon, Linda became Dan's legal assistant, which just about sent Betty over the edge. To be fair, Linda didn't have any sort of qualification for the role, and it really didn't make sense that she was made his legal assistant outside of she's hot. Even an ultimatum given by Betty who demanded that Linda be fired by October 1st or Dan could get the hell out was ignored by pig-headed Dan. Dan was gaslighting and girl-bossing his way all the way to Linda's bed, telling Betty that she was crazy to suspect an affair and that she was reading into everything too much. Like, Betty even had friends and acquaintances reporting back to her, saying that Dan had been seeing all over God's half-acre with Linda, but he always had a plausible explanation, according to him, and frequently chalked it up to work meetings and continued to tell Betty that she was the problem for even suspecting such a thing. After a while, she relented and assumed that Dan must be right and she actually was the one who was unhinged. 
unhinged. According to her book, Dan missed her 36th birthday on November 7th, 1983, and Betty made another attempt on her own life by slitting her wrists and taking pills. Obviously, it didn't work, and she knew that two weeks later was Dan's 39th birthday, so she hatched a plan. Betty thought that it was high time to march her butt cheeks down to his office and assert her wifely presence over Linda. She decided that she would surprise him with her company, but was smacked in the face with the reality that her husband actually was a bit of a scumbag. His receptionist ratted him out immediately and said that they had already had not only an office celebration, but that he had bailed out around 11 that morning with Linda. So Betty goes into his actual office and says that she saw her wedding crystal, some fine wine, and a stereo just out and about like it was being used. Which, for the record, Dan denied. And messy-ass Linda apparently had a photo of Dan pre-marriage just out and about on her desk. This actually might have been the thing to send Betty over the edge, and she flew into a rage, sped home, threw all of his clothes on her back lawn, and drenched them in gasoline, lighting the bitches on fire in front of her children. Was there a time that you recall when your mother uh, burned your father's clothes? Yes. Um, Can you describe how she went about doing that? She, the room overlooks the backyard. She went in and took all the clothes and threw them out the back over the balcony under the grass. And then she dumped the drawers out and then she went down and put gasoline all over the place and lit it on fire. And then she poured black paint all over the rest of it. Dan didn't really seem to give a crap though and he just ordered new custom tailored suits and went about his business. So the marriage waned on and talks of building their dream house began. The denial in this relationship always fascinates me because why are we planning our life together if we're out putting our wieners where they shouldn't be? Like, I don't know. I don't get it. I don't pretend to get it. Whatever makes people happy, I guess. Apparently, their home on Coral Reef had a cracked slab on the foundation, which their insurance paid them to repair, and during that time, the family rented out a home in La Jolla Shores. They figured once the repairs were done, they would sell the Coral Reef home and finally build their dream house and live happily ever after. But we're here talking about it, so obviously that's not what happened. It turns out that Dan was super unhappy with Betty at this point, obviously, and ready for greener and younger pastors. Only three months after his birthday in the spring of 1985, Dan took the plunge and drove away from Betty in his red Corvette and new 21-year-old hot-ass girlfriend. Except that's not how Dan remembers things. He was firm on his stance that he merely moved out in order to get some space and it had absolutely nothing to do with Linda. So this obvious to her deception sent Betty straight over the edge into Mommy Dearest territory where she began being super uncool toward her own flesh and blood, which is something that to this day she loves to gloss over during any interview. And around this time, Linda had actually moved into the home, which was really just adding more fuel to the fire. Anyway, Betty began randomly dropping the kids off one by one with Dan at their coral reef home, which was almost done with repairs, but still didn't have any furniture for the kids. There was zero warning with every child, and she would just pack up some essentials and literally leave them on the doorstep, regardless of whether or not he was home. In fact, the first daughter that she sent, Kim, she allegedly kicked her out on Easter because Kim had gotten in an argument with her younger sister, Lee, and Betty said, "Mm, that's good enough for me, and sent her off to Dan. It was so weird. Can you describe how it was that, that you ended up over there? Um, well, it was on Easter, the night before Easter, and Mom and I got in an argument because I had this friend over that I wanted her to take home, and we had just been at Warden Springs, and she didn't want to take her home. She was tired, so she said no, and we got in an argument, so I went back into my room, 
And then mom came in and said that, that pack up and leave, that she was, she didn't want me there anymore. I can go live with dad, so. Then I packed up and left. So you packed up your clothes and did, did she take you over to your dad's house? Yeah. At some later point, did either of your brothers or sister come over to Coral Reef? My brother, Danny, came over the next day on Easter, and then my sister, Leigh and Rhett, came over a month or two later. How, how was it that Danny was brought over? He was fighting with Rhett, and Mom had enough of it, so she told him to pack up and move with me. Did, did she actually bring him over? Yes. What was, the, what was his emotional state when he was brought over? It seemed to Dan like she was just trying to prove a point, like, here you go, have them, see how hard it is to raise kids on your own as a single parent. But Betty's account of the story came from a more heroic standpoint, where she says that she only ditched them once she had to move into another rental that she found unsuitable and unsafe for the kids. Regardless, this would eventually lead to losing custody during her divorce. Things ended up shifting into violence once Linda moved into the Coral Reef home and Betty found out, and Dan said, quote, she would come into the house whenever she wanted to. But in June 1985, she started on rampages, throwing stuff through the windows and breaking mirrors and spray painting the walls. I mean, unbelievable things. She would say that I provoked her and she was upset with me because I did something or other. At one time, I had taken the kids to get haircuts and she was expecting them at a soccer game. I didn't know they were supposed to be at a soccer game. I'm not that kind of person that would take them to get a haircut to spite her. I came home and there were hundreds, maybe thousands of dollars in damage. I mean, windows broken and chandeliers cracked and a stereo smashed. It was unbelievable stuff. I called the police. What can you do about this? Nothing. You don't have a court order. It's her house. She can do whatever she wants. They wouldn't even take a report, unquote. He also said, quote, my little kids would watch this and they'd be crying when I'd come home. They couldn't control it. I couldn't control it. She kept saying, this is my house. I can come in whether you like it or not. I don't have to listen to a court order. The court can't keep me out of my own house, unquote. On top of this, there were plenty of nasty voicemails that Betty left. Stop going long enough to return my call. But there's one in particular, just a phone call between Betty and Danny that somehow wound up being recorded. I'm not really sure how that happened, but either way, it was recorded, this 34-minute phone call that I'm going to play now, just little snippets of it. My God, not the full 34 minutes. It's heartbreaking. Both are separated, Mom. And he, he, he likes somebody else now. He doesn't like you anymore. But I mean, if you gotta, you gotta stop saying the bad words. Why doesn't he like me anymore? Because he, he's been, he's sick of you. Because you guys get in all these fights. What are these fights? I don't know. Because he was f- secretary. Even before that, you got in fights, Mom. 
absolute scum. He has cheated and lied and f***ed around. There's nothing... Don't you think being mad for two years is enough, though, Mom? We're the best family in the whole world. We were all so happy. All the kids and me were so happy. He was just... I know we would be a lot happier if you just stopped saying bad words. Well, you tell that slime ball... See what I mean, Mom? You're saying it right now. You better stop. Dan had spent his entire time trying to keep the peace with Betty, but she was having none of this, and eventually, with all of this evidence in hand, Dan pulled the trigger and filed for divorce in September 1985. In an effort to further distance himself from Betty, Dan sat her down and tried to have a discussion revolving around their finances. He wanted her to start paying her own way and becoming independent, but he also planned on giving her a voluntary $9,000 a month in an allowance tax-free and would keep up on insurances, taxes, club dues, and boat fees. So this must have been really hard for poor baby Betty. I'm being sarcastic. And he also took out a restraining order. Meanwhile, Betty got to work trying to find a divorce lawyer, although it was not easy considering Dan pretty much ran the town and rubbed all of the elbows of local attorneys. Because Betty was relentlessly menacing the household, Dan felt that he needed to implement boundaries in the only way that she would understand financial penalties. I wrote her a letter and I said, look, if you don't stop harassing me, I'm going to withhold $200 for every obscene word you use, $500 every time you come into my house, and $1,000 every time you take the kids away without telling me in advance. At one point, Betty stopped giving a shit so much so that she ended up owing him $1,300. She also managed to get herself jailed twice for contempt of court. Because she, in her thousand-level IQ brain, thought that if she just didn't show up to court for the divorce, it just wouldn't happen. I don't know. I don't know. She says that she called a ton of lawyers and either wrote them off as inadequate or they refused to take her case. Either way, finding someone to represent her was proving to be one hell of a challenge. In February 1986, Daniel sold the Coral Reef home without Betty's permission, and this kicked off a big problem. He ended up moving into a mansion with Linda in the Balboa Park neighborhood. This absolutely pissed Betty off, although to be fair, I don't think he could cough without sending Betty into a violent rage at this point, but that's neither here nor there. Speaking of violent rages, Betty got so upset that she rammed her car through his front door. Keep in mind, she had zero idea where her kids were in the house, but this was a risk that she was willing to take to make a point. When Dan tried to pull her out of the car, she tried to pull out a butcher knife from under her seat. This ordeal led to a 5150 hole, and her parents, who were currently visiting from New York, chose the path of least resistance and boarded a plane back home, never to return. The Broderick versus Broderick case became one of the more infamous divorce cases in the U.S., mostly due to the fact that it involved women who had worked while putting their husbands through graduate schools and professional school. By this time, Dan had become a very prominent local lawyer, serving as president of the San Diego Bar Association. Judge Milton Mike surprised Betty when he granted the divorce decree in July of 1986, because Betty was under some weird impression that if she didn't have a lawyer by the time that they were supposed to battle it out in court, proceedings would be delayed. Unfortunately for her, that's just not how the justice system works, and Betty completely ditched the hearing altogether, which led to full custody of the four kids being awarded to Dan. Alright, so do we all remember the voluntary 9000 a month we talked about a few minutes ago? Well, Betty was still under the impression that that was a pauper's wage and demanded that he more than double it, 
to either twenty or $25,000 a month, in addition to all the other stuff he was planning on paying. The absolute balls of this woman. She has low-hanging brass ones, I tell ya. But Betty knew that broke, bitter bitches like myself would think that and judge her and urged us to remember that Dan, or Count Do Money, which he nicknamed himself, made anywhere between 600000 to $1.3 million each year. But that's also kind of bull honky and baloney because that means that even during his toughest year, she would still be taking home 300000 for no reason other than she was his ex-wife. The judge landed somewhere in the middle and ruled that Dan must pay Betty $16,000 a month and a cash award of 28000 and unsurprisingly, that number still pissed Betty off because it wouldn't allow for her to make ends meet. Okay, Betty. I'm just going to quote this whole section from an article written on sandiegoreader.com because they secured an interview with Betty, and I think it's just so interesting and worded so well. So Betty argued that, quote, under the best circumstances, 16000 a month left her with a discretionary income of just 2000 a month after she deducted her 4000 monthly house payment, another 4000 for taxes, and other more or less fixed expenses for cars, utilities, and so forth, unquote. My guy, I'm making 2000 a month, and I still have to pay all of that. Where's Count do money when you need him? She also argued that she needed child support, which is absolute bull if you recall who won custody in this case, because someone couldn't be bothered to show up, Betty. But she argued that the kids spent most weekends with her, and one of her daughters had moved back in with her. Long story short, Betty was incensed that she couldn't buy her kids the fanciest clothing so that way she would look good in public and like she didn't have little garbage monsters for children. Things that are clearly very important. Things went from bad to worse for Miss Betty because in June of 1988, a judge directed Dan to begin deducting $2,000 a month from Betty's alimony, all because she still didn't have a lawyer that she felt suited her needs. It's really interesting because many believe that Dan deliberately provoked Betty, pushing her mental instability to a breaking point from which there would be no return. Further, he intentionally prolonged the divorce process for nearly four years because, as it turned out, there was a specific reason behind his actions that I was unaware of until doing research for this. So in the state of California where Dan and Betty were going through their divorce, a little-known legal concept called the Epstein Credits existed and Dan cleverly exploited this to his advantage. Under the divorce law, the supporting spouse, in this case Dan, could demand that the dependent spouse, Betty, be responsible for half of all the community debts accumulated from the date of separation, not the date of the actual divorce. This meant that in cases where divorce proceedings dragged on, the dependent spouse could accumulate a significant amount of Epstein credits, effectively canceling out their share of the community property. Basically, Dan had strategically ensured that Betty would receive nothing from their shared wealth. Now that Dan was officially free of Betty, he was allowed to go and marry Linda, and on April 22, 1989, they unknowingly put the nail in their own coffin by having the absolute gall to get married. Prior to the wedding, Betty had been on her bullshit and already threatened to take Dan's life. Legitimately fearing for his life, Dan hired security, but fortunately, Betty skipped out on the wedding and things went off without a hitch. After the wedding, Betty claimed that Linda allegedly taunted her by mailing her facial cream, slimming treatment ads, and sending her obscene messages about her mothering methods. I do have to say that I couldn't find any proof of this, so if you guys have anything that you would like to share in the comments, please let me know. But I couldn't find even the voicemails that were left for Betty. But still, the threats of violence waned on and things came to a deadly head in early November 1989. The day before the murder, 
Betty says that she received a letter from Dan that was threatening to take her back to court and prevent her from seeing her sons because she refused to find her chill. She was basically blowing up at Dan at all times, being horrible whenever she had the opportunity to talk to her kids, and kind of trying to poison their relationship with her dad. So it seemed like Betty spent that day spiraling until she finally snapped and decided it was time to end things once and for all. So at around 5 a.m. on November 5th, 1989, Betty let herself into Dan and Linda's mansion at 1041 Cypress Avenue using Lee's key that she had stolen from her purse. She brought a Smith & Wesson revolver with her because she thought it would, quote, make them listen, unquote, and then she planned on using it to take her own life in front of them. She acted quickly and snuck into the couple's bedroom where they lay sleeping, but somewhere along the way, her plan got messed up. She said, quote, they moved, I moved, and it was over, unquote, and claimed that her memory went blank. Betty fired five shots at Dan and Linda, killing them both. Two bullets hit Linda in the head and chest, killing her instantly, and one bullet hit Dan in the chest as he was apparently reaching for the phone. One hit the wall, and one bullet hit a nightstand. Medical evidence indicated that Dan had not died right away, and Betty claimed that she had spoken to him after she had shot him, and allegedly, Dan's last words were, quote, okay, you shot me, I'm dead, unquote. But in my personal opinion, Betty is a horribly unreliable narrator, so she probably just told him to fuck off and bailed. Dan was murdered just 17 days shy of his 45th birthday, and Linda was only 28 years old. Betty fled the house after taking the phone off of the wall to ensure that, if Dan had lived, he wasn't going to get help, and then called her daughter Lee and Lee's boyfriend. Prosecutor Paul Burkhoff questions Lee about Betty Broderick's call to Lee the morning of the incident. What time was it approximately? Approximately around 7 a.m. Did you answer that phone call? Yes, I did. Who was in the line? It was my mom. What did she tell you? She said she was in trouble and she needed my help. What else did she say? She told me that she shot my dad. She shot the son of a bitch. She wanted to come to my house. I told her to come. Once she got there, did did your mother tell you more about what went on? Yes. What did she tell you? She told me that she had... She thought she had shot my dad, but she she didn't know because it was dark and drapes were drawn. She wasn't sure. She said she shot the gun one time, but it fired five or six times. She told me that um, she didn't know what had happened because the drapes were drawn and it was completely dark. I was asking her if... um, she had heard anyone, if there was any screams or blood or anything like that. And she told me that she didn't think that she had hurt my dad because he had sat up and said, um, all right, you shot me, I'm dead. Betty followed up her phone call by turning herself into police, never once denying that she had pulled the trigger, but consistently arguing that it wasn't premeditated and that Linda screaming, call the police, had freaked her out, so she shot them. Even though... We just talked about the fact that she doesn't remember. It's all very interesting. Betty's first trial began on October 22nd, 1990. Her criminal defense attorney, Jack Early, represented her at the trial, leaning into the battered woman syndrome, and Betty quickly became the face for battered, scorned wives. During her trial, she described Dan as being an emotionally abusive man and that he was the one who forced her hand into, quote, making them listen, unquote. Jack presented a narrative illustrating how Betty went above and beyond to support her husband in the early years of their marriage. 
She worked tirelessly in five different jobs and played a crucial role in helping her young husband navigate through medical and law school, which is kind of true. Like, really, if she hadn't been the one to pay their way, I don't really know. I don't know. Maybe at a scholarship. Whatever. It's not important. The point is, everyone felt bad for her because she really did kind of nut up when he needed her to in the beginning. According to Early's argument, Dan's success as an attorney would not have been possible without Betty's unwavering assistance. Witnesses attested that Betty exemplified the qualities of an ideal mother and a dedicated, hardworking spouse. However, as per Jack Early's account, the situation took a drastic turn when Dan callously disregarded Betty in favor of a quote-unquote younger model. Early argued that after enduring years of Dan's deceit, legal intimidation leveraging his influential position as the president of the San Diego County Bar Association and relentless provocation, Betty reached a breaking point, leading her to commit the murder spontaneously without any premeditation. State prosecutor Carrie Wells painted a contrasting image of Betty as a heartless, self-centered, and narcissistic killer who meticulously planned and plotted her ex-husband's murder over an extended period of time. By presenting numerous recorded phone calls left by Betty on Dan and Linda's answering machine, introducing evidence of Betty's repeated acts of vandalism at Dan's residence, and having her eldest daughter, Kim, testify about Betty's anger and lack of remorse following the murders, Carrie aimed to persuade the jury that Betty was a dangerous, callous individual who was spiraling out of control. It's kind of funny, too, because during one interview, Carrie says, quote, I've had my fill of Elizabeth Broderick. She was not a battered woman. She was getting $16,000 a month in alimony. She had a million-dollar La Jolla house, a car, a boyfriend. I see abused women every day with broken bones and smashed faces. Give me a break, unquote. As in most cases like this, she did have to be evaluated by a psychiatrist. And according to her psychiatrist, Dr. Park Dietz, she exhibited histrionic and narcissistic personality disorders. At the end of the day, a mistrial was declared by Judge Thomas Whelan because two of the jurors held out for manslaughter, citing that lack of intent with one of the jurors quoted as saying, quote, I only wonder what took her so long, unquote. First off, rude. A year later, on December 11th, 1991, Betty Broderick faced a retrial with the same defense attorney and prosecutor. The second trial closely mirrored the first trial, though Jack Early consistently asserted that Judge Thomas Whelan significantly limited Betty's defense during the second trial, while simultaneously allowing the prosecution to present an expanded case. Early felt that he had pretty good evidence to indicate that Dan was probably going to murder Betty, but unfortunately, the judge ruled that that wasn't considered good evidence because Betty didn't know that that was supposed to happen. So it shouldn't have affected her final decision to end him and Linda's life. This time, Betty's defense attorney characterized Daniel as a man plagued by alcoholism with two prior convictions for driving under the influence. And he recounted an incident where Dan, with his wife at home caring for their newborn baby, irresponsibly drove intoxicated with their three other kids in the vehicle. That is a fair point. Probably not a good thing. He emphasized that the battleground for Broderick's bitter divorce was in Dan's domain. According to Early, Betty was left trapped under an overwhelming avalanche that continues to haunt her to this day, offering no chance of escape. At the end of the day, the jury returned with a verdict of two counts of second-degree murder. Betty was sentenced to two consecutive terms of 15 years to life, plus two years for illegal use of a firearm, which is the maximum under the law. She's been incarcerated since the day she committed the murders and is serving her sentence at California's Institution for Women in Chino, California. She has been denied parole on multiple occasions. In fact, her kids had attended a few of her parole hearings. It's kind of split down the middle. Like, 
literally half and half where two of them are like, yes, let her out. And the other two are like, no, she's unrepentant, which is actually exactly what the parole board thought. And that is why Betty's pretty little butt cheeks are still in prison today. And to be honest, by the time this is all said and done, I don't really feel too bad for Betty or Dan outside of the fact that Dan was murdered. That is awful. But I do feel the worst for Linda, which that's probably a hot take. Like, duh, I don't want people killing people just because you have a point to prove that should go without saying. But if what everyone's saying is true, Dan wasn't really a gem to interact with. They were both strong and stubborn personalities that both seemed to need to be in control. And even from the start, in my opinion, Dan was more interested in the chase and used Betty's initial rejection as a challenge because she was young and hot. But even according to him, once the ball got rolling, they were obviously incompatible. So like, what made them stay? My personal opinion is that it was a toxic mix of religion and hubris. They're both from extremely religious backgrounds, and while I myself am not super dedicated to any one religion, I do have plenty of people in my life who are balls deep into Catholic, LDS, and Christian faiths, and they really don't fuck around when it comes to holy matrimony. As for Betty falling in love with Dan after the first meeting was a flop, I don't really know. Maybe she liked the attention, what with her histrionic personality disorder? She did mention that he was funny and kind, but like, I'm sorry, put a picture of Betty next to Dan at that time. It's baffling. Not that he's ugly, but like in comparison, it gives me pause. Look up pictures of Betty back in the day. She was a hot bitch. At the end of the day, my opinion doesn't really matter. What's done is done, but I am curious to hear what you guys think. I would especially love to hear from those who are in the psychiatric field and have experience with people like this. What could have made the start and end the way that it did? If you guys are interested in cases of women scorned and want me to cover a specific one, please leave it in the comments on YouTube or the related Instagram post at Creeps and Creeps Podcast. I read all of my comments, the good, the bad, and the constructive, so please don't be afraid to voice your opinions. That being said, don't be dickheads to each other in the comments. As always, you can have your own opinion, but so can Mike and Jessica and Eric, and we don't all need to share the same one. If you're streaming this as a podcast, please consider throwing a rating my way. Again, five stars always is the most helpful, and subscribing to the show. You can email me directly at creepsx2 at gmail.com or DM me on Instagram at creepsandcreepspodcast if you want to suggest a case or just shoot the shit. If you're ever curious about my sources, they will be linked in the show notes so you can sift through them if you want. I also have a blog post dedicated to each episode on creepsandcreeps.com that I will link my sources in as well. Until next time, keep those little noggins on a swivel, and please try to stay safe. Bye!